This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us again. While we often lament the corruption and the collapse of Western culture, which has been exacerbated by the influence of cultural Marxism, but what is the way back? My next guest notes that the past can teach us a lot about the culture that we want to preserve and protect. And in fact, understanding our culture and its past, particularly through the arts, just might be key to defending our civilization. So joining me now is journalist, author, and screenwriter Michael Walsh. We're going to talk about his new book called The Fiery Angel, Art, Culture, Sex, Politics, and the Struggle for the Soul of the West. Michael, it's great to have you here. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Janet. How are you? Very well, thank you. I know we talked a few years ago about the Devil's Pleasure Palace, your previous book, great book. Now you thank say you. yes. Now you say the necessity of restoring Western culture has only become more urgent since then. How has that been the case? Well, I think we've seen uh, the, the the left and the the atheist left, the cultural Marxist left, move the ball quite a ways from from three years ago when Devil came out. Uh, for one thing, they've effectively tried to delegitimize Western culture by calling it racist and homophobic and intolerant and bigoted and appropriating. And, you know, they've applied so many negative adjectives uh, to what we used to think was just our normal culture uh, that it's clear that they want to take it down, which was the thesis of the Devil's Pleasure Palace. But now it's become quite obvious. Right. Is that a sign of desperation or is that a sign of further deterioration, would you say? No, I think it's a sign that they think they're winning. I don't think it's desperation at all. I think uh, they think they've got us on the run, and the point of the fiery angel is to show them that uh, they don't have us on the run. And furthermore, there are a lot more of us than there are of them, and we have at least 3,000 years of history on our side. Absolutely. Now, when you see the language changing, you had mentioned all of these monikers, these insults that they hurl at us, racist, bigoted, homophobe, Islamophobe, whatever they want to say. Yet they come up with new terms or new rights, so-called, or new freedoms. You have the freedom from a hostile environment. Well, that was not traditionally what we understood freedom to mean as Americans, as outlined in our founding documents. How much has that changed the culture, just bringing in new ideas like that slowly and then a new generation of kids, for example, says, oh, yeah, I have the right to a safe space. How is that really changing our culture? Well, it it began, of course, with uh, Franklin Roosevelt, with his four freedoms where, you know, he had posited that we have uh, freedom from hunger, freedom from want, whatever the four freedoms where I don't have them in front of me. Yeah. And Barack Obama uh, mentioned that at, at one point early in his, either the campaign or the first administration, how the Constitution of the United States was a charter of negative liber- liberties, what the government can't do to us. But what the left has always wanted is for there to be a charter of positive rights, 
which enumerate exactly what we get to do. And, of course, they'll, they're the ones that are going to invent those rights. And that's what they've been doing very spiritedly for the last uh, 75, 80 years, and especially uh, recently where there's uh, every week, it seems, there's a new grievance group demanding new rights about something. Right. But to answer the basic question, the underlying question, they don't care what the Constitution says. They, they're beyond that now. I mean, I, I said, oh, 10 or 15, 20 years ago that I never thought I'd see the day where the left would actually attack the Constitution because they always used to hide behind it. Yes. Well, now they don't hide behind it. They, they like attacking it. And it's all part of critical theory, which is to uh, question everything, attack everything and destroy everything. Yes. Although with what would they replace it all? When you look at the left and you look at the cultural Marxists, they love to destroy. But what would they put in its place if they could get all, everything that they wanted? Nothing. That, that, that's the answer. Nothing. They don't care. They're nihilists. You know, it's, yeah. you think of the great, the big Lebowski, the wonderful Coen Brothers movie, uh, where at, at one point the the uh, the foreigners who are attacking the bowlers are John Goodman says, you know, settle down, Donnie. They're nihilists. So <laughs> that, that's what they are. They just want to wreck. They don't. They're like the Joker and Batman. I, I I made this point in in Devil's Pleasure Palace. You know, there there are some people who just want to see the world burn, and that's them. Yeah, that's so true. Well, isn't this a sign of what you mentioned in the book? This spiritual penury. I mean, this you know this poverty that we're really suffering from in our culture. Yeah, well, I think that moving religion out of the uh, its its central place in American and Western European life was the principal goal that they had, and they've accomplished that very well. And in my uh, my other home country of Ireland, uh, they've just removed the constitutional proscription against abortion. Yes. Uh, in, a, in a not even close vote, basically two-to-one vote nationwide. And so that will now reduce Ireland to the status of every other country in the European Union, effectively. And they they want a, a, an irreligious and uh, agnostic, if not actually atheistic, society in which uh, they can wreak their mischief. Yeah, they sure do. It's depressing. So going back to the past is what your theme is here in the book, especially when we're looking at the arts. How is that a necessary part of restoring culture and getting Western civilization back? Well, it's crucial because you have to know where you came from, as I say in the in the fiery angel. If you know, uh, if you know, to know where you're going, and we have this very glorious history that goes back certainly to Plato and Aristotle, and before them to Homer, uh, and continues in our storytelling and philosophical and artistic traditions right up to today. So, what they decided to do was, as part of their general uh, animus against Western civilization, to cut us off from it and then delegitimize it. So, if you don't know it, then you can't defend it. And then, after a while, you're you're taught to hate it in the abstract. So, this is why now uh, we get the assault on the dead white males. Yes, uh, you know, with the, look, let's just be realistic here. The United States was. Uh, overwhelmingly white and, and was throughout its entire history, not because of a plot, but because that's the way it evolved, right. the same way that Europe evolved that way. Uh, there are different races, different ethnic groups all over the world, but for some reason now, whiteness is now being demonized as well, because that's associated with Westernness, and they want to make sure that the Western countries are uh, destroyed. So that's that's why all these attacks on, on, 
on what used to be unremarkable things uh, are intensifying. Yeah, well, they're screaming how evil being white is, even as they yell that we're racists. So I don't know how they're able to balance that when that's so contradictory. Well, they don't really care about, you know, whether they contradict themselves or not. They just want to keep screaming. So we have to uh, ignore the screaming, and then we have to fight back with the tools that we've been given. And, and this is what the Fiery Angel is all about. All the tools you need to fight back against these people are in there. And, in, and I hope in a non-didactic way, in, a, in an entertaining and interesting way, but, but uh, linking up the Greek myths, for example, with the philosophy of Aristotle, with the history of Alexander the Great, with Thomas Aquinas, with Mozart and Bach and the development of polyphony, right up to our present day with Dracula and Beauty and the Beast and these sort of timeless fairy tales that we all love. They're all part of a unity, a very cohesive unity, and, and that's what I'm trying to draw your attention to in The Fiery Angel. Yeah, now you're talking about, for instance, the heroic narrative, the struggle between good and evil. Is that the tie that binds as you're going all the way back to the Greeks and moving forward in history? Yes, because uh, the thing that distinguishes Western civilization from others uh, is the notion that, as I like to say, we're all the heroes of our own movie. We're not ants in an ant farm. We're not cogs in the wheel. And so that notion of the primacy of the individual and the importance of the individual uh, has been with us from the beginning, from the Greeks. And if you go back to Sophocles uh, and uh, Euripides and Aristophanes, uh, you will see these uh, fundamental tropes of Western civilization planted right there. And it should give you hope that you're not alone. I mean, the point is the way you break anybody is to make, make him or her believe that they're alone, that no one else is going to come to their aid, that they have no leg to stand on. Uh, and that they might as well just give up and, and convert. Well, we don't want to, and we don't have to, and we have a culture that tells us exactly why it's dangerous to do that, and we just have to be back in touch with it. No, you're so right. That's really a tool that the left likes to use. You're all by yourself. You're out of touch. You're out of the mainstream of history, and you know you want to be on the right side of history. Well, let's go back to history. We're going to take a break and come back with Michael Walsh. His book is called The Fiery Angel. Stay with us on Janet Meffer Today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Authorities in China are making life difficult for Christians. It's against the law to share Christ with children under age 18. We cannot preach to children under 18. That is their practice and law. But when the parents bring kids to the church, when you can teach them English, and then you can send the gift of gospel to them, it is a great joy. Believers are teaching English to young people using a Bible League program that uses God's Word as the source of the reading assignments. And many are coming to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior and sharing Him with their families. Please join Bible League in sending God's Word to Bibleist believers in China and around the world for only $5 per Bible. $50 sends $10, $500 sends $100. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you for your support. 
Every day, babies in their mother's wombs are fighting for life, with abortion being the leading cause of death. I already had my mind made up. I was like, I'm going to go through with it. The Ministry of Preborn has pregnancy centers nationwide standing by to help young moms in crisis choose life. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasound sessions in the country. By letting a mother see her baby in the womb and hear the baby's heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. When I'm sitting there, the lady is giving me my ultrasound. She's like making these weird faces. She's like, it's two. I just start crying. I can't. And sometimes the blessing is doubled. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 400 babies by the end of the year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies from abortion. And now through a match, your gift will be doubled. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Glad to have you here and also glad to have with us Michael Walsh. His new book is called The Fiery Angel, Art, Culture, Sex, Politics, and the Struggle for the Soul of the West. And his previous book, such a great book, The Devil's Pleasure Palace, focused on the Frankfurt School critical theory, the cultural Marxists, and how they've been uh, affecting our culture over these many years. And now it's about finding a way back. And I think this is so important, Michael. When you look, for example, at the fiery angel itself, Prokofiev's opera. Yes. What does that speak to us about good and evil, the heroic narrative, and the power of the arts in restoring culture? Well, I chose the title because of its resonance, and also because uh, it also it, it, for a number of reasons it matched up uh, with uh, my theory of obscure opera titles for titles of my own <laughs> book, like The Devil's Pleasure Palace, which was an opera by the very youthful Franz Schubert. Uh, this was an opera by the mature Prokofiev that was not really performed in his lifetime and has only grudgingly found its way into the repertoire. It's a very strange piece. It's about uh, a hysterical woman who may or may not be a prostitute who is locked up in an attic, and when the hero encounters her, because it's the only other room that he can stay in at the inn, uh, she tells him the story of how she was seduced by a, a fiery angel named Mariel. And Mariel is, in fact, an angel that's mentioned in various books of necromancy and the occult, uh, and she um, uh, she fell in love with the angel, and then he abandoned her, and so now she's kind of on this revenge mission. Uh, but I wanted to use the notion of the, the 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 being on fire, which we have as a trope in Western civilization, specifically the phoenix, uh, to link up all these ideas that I call the chain of cultural resonances. And one of them that I can explain very quickly is that the opening motif of Prokofiev's opera, The Fiery Angel, uh, takes the notes from Stravinsky's ballet, The Firebird, which mm-hmm. is about the phoenix, right. uh, and, and, and uh, changes them, but they're recognizably the same notes. So Stravinsky's already linking himself up to, uh, Prokofiev's linking himself up to Stravinsky, and he's connecting The Fiery Angel with the phoenix, and the phoenix is the symbol of Alexandria, the city that Alexander the Great built in Egypt as his capital, and it's a symbol of the re- the constant rebirth of Western civilization. So that's why I chose that for the, the icon- iconographic image of this book. Yeah, you know what really strikes me is how when you delve into the significance of what you just said and the, the ties between Stravinsky and Prokofiev, and then you compare it to the music that we're getting now, not from high culture, but from pop culture, vulgar rap and, you know, kill the police and whatever it is that's popular right now. 
it does matter, doesn't it? The sort of music that we're taking in. Well, I, you know, my, my feeling about pop music is it's ephemeral and it changes constantly. And it's not something we ought to get overly concerned about. Uh, concert music was a very special thing. It lasted about a century and a half, I would say. Uh, it's now more of a museum thing than an active, ongoing art form. And whether that's good or bad, I, you know, obviously I come down on the bad side. Uh, but I don't think we can compare rap, say, with, with Prokofiev. I mean, it's just, no. they literally are apples and oranges. But I think we, we do need to do, though, is, is look for the best popular art, which is what, is what survives, yes. and then see what about it is resonating with the culture. What does it tell us about the culture that's producing it? That's exactly what I was thinking, because in so much, and I'm not denigrating, I, I like some popular music, but I'm, uh, you, know, you see in so much of what has been spewed out in the last 20 years, a certain amount of chaos and hopelessness and meaninglessness. And again, we're back to the quality of rage that so defines the left. I'm just angry, and I'm going to pour out all my anger. You know, you, you go on uh, your Kindle, and you look at Amazon, and you stream some of the free music and I see explicit, explicit, explicit on so many of the albums. And I thought that yeah. is a reflection of culture when you have that going on. No, it definitely is. Yeah. But I, as again, I, I would say not to lose too much sleep about that. that. That comes and goes. And many of the terms that we apply to music we don't like were also applied to, for example, uh, there's a whole chapter in this book about uh, miraculous mandarins using the Bartok ballet for that, and boy, did that get ripped <laughs> apart. As did Stravinsky, and in much the same terms that, you know, that we use uh, applied to rap music today. So it's always in the ear of the beholder. And uh, popular music is a young person's game, and after a while, you just get too old for it, and yeah. then you just stop. <laughs> you, it doesn't speak to you anymore. So yeah, that, it's that's so my true. attitude towards that. It's so true. Well, you mentioned somebody else who I just really love, Vladimir Horowitz, the famous pianist, and you yes. write about this is. Fascinating to me because you cite his visit to the Soviet Union in 1986 and your coverage of that event and its significance. And I was wondering if you would share that story, because I do think that that shows a real uh, powerful example of the arts over and against culture and, and speaking to culture. Can you talk about that event a little bit? Sure. Yeah, I was there. With, I was there for it. Obviously, I wrote the cover story in Time magazine that appeared in May of '86. Uh, it was an interesting time because uh, during the two weeks that we were in the Soviet Union, uh, the U.S. bombed Libya and uh, Chernobyl blew up. So yeah. this all happened uh, while we were there. Uh, so place it in that context, and also in the recent protests at the time. Recent protests against the Pers Pershing missiles in Europe and, you know, Ronald Reagan was the cowboy and, you know, the usual, same thing you hear today about yes. Trump you heard about Reagan. But what struck me uh, particularly was the three performances that Horowitz gave, two in Moscow, one private, one public, and then one in Leningrad. Um, they were just swarmed by people who just burst through the KGB lines and as I say uh, in, in the book, when I got to my seat in the balcony of the Tchaikovsky Hall there at the conservatory, there were three kids in my seat. So, um, <laughs> you know, we had to, I had to 86 a couple of them. Um, but they, they just, they did not want to miss the great man, but also what he represented, which was he had escaped the Soviet Union. He, he left, he, he emigrated secretly when he was a young man, and he held out hope and a promise for the future. And at that point... I just knew the Soviet Union was dead, and, and I came back uh, from that, and the year previously in East Germany in 85, and I said to the managing editor at the time, this country's doomed, 
And I went on the radio uh, in New York on the Lynn Samuel show, as a matter of fact, soon thereafter, and predicted that uh, Germany would be reunited within five years. And, of course, uh, I was way off because it was only two. So (laughs) that's what happened. But you could see the culture was overwhelming the the enforced political uh, false reality. And the Russian people rose up and they used Horowitz partly as a as a battering ram against their own government. Yeah, they sure did. I was there around that time, too, and I had the same thought. I didn't predict, but I said, wow, these people are not completely in line with the Soviet system anymore. They're really not. No, they never were, and that's true even more so of the other Eastern European countries, the Czechs, the Hungarians. I'm on my way to Hungary, as a matter of fact, in a week or so, and uh, uh, get a chance to see all the changes that have been made there over the last you know, 40 years that I've been going to Hungary. I'm really looking forward to it. So interesting. That should be a great trip. So when you're looking at art, again, we're talking about some of the music, but also painting and plays and all of the things that really, you know, advance this heroic narrative. How is it that you connect our past to the hope of the future by which Americans now could seize on that past to turn the culture around against the cultural Marxists? Well, compare it to if you had amnesia, you know, that you were in an accident and you lost your memory. And then uh, you'd be very disoriented and you wouldn't know anything. You know, you wouldn't know your past. You wouldn't know where you're going. You wouldn't know where you might live. Uh, That's what they've done to us. So once your memory comes back, you go, oh, this is my name and this is my mom and dad and these are my kids and this is my house and this is where my family came from and I'm oh my goodness I'm in Emporia Kansas you know instead of Seattle Washington or wherever I thought I went you you gradually begin to put your own sense of self back together and that's what we must do in the West we have to reject both Islamism which is a terrible terrible threat yes everything yes Christianity and Judeo-Christianity holds dear uh, and cultural Marxism which is an atheistic threat of almost the same uh, caliber, and uh, it hasn't been at it quite as long, but uh, they're both at it together. So we need to remember who we are, and that's really all this book is a plea to help you remember by using things you already know, like Dracula, like Beauty and the Beast, uh, like Stravinsky and Prokofiev, if you you know classical music, or the Greek plays, or the Oresti, or the Aeneid, or Roman history, or whatever it is that may... uh, Uh, tickle your fancy. I hope there's something in here for you that will be useful for you to go back to and read and and listen and experience. There's also great works of painting cited in the book, and we spent the extra money to put uh, reproductions of those pictures in the book so you can actually see them, and it's not just me talking about them. And whatever it is that intersects with your life, you can say, oh, yes, so that's what that meant. It's not just an abstract one-off thing. It's a connective piece of the connective tissue from the Greeks to the present day. And that's really important to understand. Well, it really is. Would you say that there is a most important next move to restore or to maintain Western civilization? Clearly, this is going back to the arts, but is there anything in particular that you think needs to happen to begin to turn the tide some more in the direction of recovering our past and the heroic narrative? Yes, we have to stop being afraid of these people. They're not our friends. They're not nice people. They come like Satan in the guise of being friendly and kindly and trying to help us out of our own benightedness. But in fact, they're wicked, and we just have to uh, put them in their place. Uh, One of the things that I admire about the president 
is he just calls it as he sees it, and it drives them absolutely <laughs> nuts. Yes. And just, they're not used to being spoken to like that. Speak to them like that. It's the only language they understand. Absolutely. And it would seem to go back to what really is good and what really is evil, because to some extent, the left has enjoyed reversing that, or at least attempting to reverse that. Well, that's true. I do cite the famous line, you know, the devil's greatest trick is making us believe he doesn't exist, which... Uh, you know, it, it resonates throughout our poetic and, and movie history. So um, that's we have to pay attention to that. It's actually true. Yeah, it sure is. Well, I, I think this is a wonderful prescription, and I'm all for it. I think that the, you really outlined some great stuff here for people to revisit. The Fiery Angel is the name of the book. Michael Walsh joining us. Michael, an honor. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. All right. God bless you, and we'll be back right after this. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Was the universe an accident and human life along with it? We know what the Bible says, but what does science actually say on the subject? In fact, the latest scientific evidence paints a very different picture than the evolutionary story many of us may have heard in school. So we're going to talk about it today with Eric Anderson. He is an attorney, an entrepreneur, software engineering executive, design theorist, and contributing author on evolution and intelligent design and uncommon descent. And he's also a contributor to the book we're going to discuss today called Evolution and Intelligent Design in a Nutshell. Eric, great to have you with us. How are you? Thank you so much, Janet. Glad to be here. Thank you. So this is interesting to me because we have all been fed this line that, in fact, science is very, very different and science tells a different tale about the universe and human life as you may have understood it in Sunday school. But what is going on scientifically showing that the universe and mankind actually are not an accident? Exactly. So there's a lot of research that's been going on, particularly over the last, I would say, 20, 30 years as we have gotten more acquainted with what's going on in biology, with the complexity of the cell, and not just the complexity, but the integrated functionality, uh, information in DNA, the molecular machines, the regulatory networks, all of these kinds of things that speak to intelligent activity rather than unguided, undirected natural process. And so there's been a real resurgence in the last, like I say, 20 or 30 years of the idea of intelligent design in nature, both in cosmology and in particular in biology. And we talk about both of these aspects in our book. Right, exactly. Now, there are a lot of different things that are discussed in the book pertaining to things like the Big Bang and a fine-tuned universe. But of those discoveries that have been coming out over the last several decades, what are some of the highlights in terms of backing up the idea and the notion of intelligent design? Sure. So in the first chapter, we do talk about cosmology. We talk about the Big Bang and some of the discoveries that indicate that the universe uh, had a beginning. There's good evidence for that. We talked a little bit about the multiverse idea that's being thrown around, which is really an attempt in many ways to get around the concept of fine-tuning that we see in our universe where the laws and constants of physics and chemistry 
are really balanced on the razor's edge, uh, we might say, to permit life. Um, they're not sufficient for life. We still have to look to biology and the design that exists in biology, but you start with the cosmological argument at that level. And then in the other chapters, we talk about information in biology. We talk about self-replication, which is kind of a new aspect that I'm putting in that, that hasn't been discussed a lot. And then probably some of your listeners are familiar with um, some of the fossil record issues and some of the things around irreducible complexity that Mike Behe has done such a great job of talking about. And we've got some chapters on that as well. Oh, yeah, there's so much good stuff in here. And as you mentioned, you write a chapter in this book, which is really great. You say in your chapter that for many of the leading origin of life researchers, this idea of self-replication, as you describe it, is the holy grail. Now, can you explain for people what exactly are you talking about when you're discussing this idea of self-replication? Right. So what's happened in, uh, let me back up just a little bit. When you talk to somebody about evolution sometimes and you're asking questions about it and you bring up the origin of life, often you will get a comment along the lines of, well, we don't have to deal with that. That's a separate concept from evolution. Evolution only starts once we have a living organism that's on the earth. And indeed, Darwin didn't address the origin of life in his great classic, The Origin of Species. He just said, okay, assume that we have a living organism. Now what happens during the history of life? Uh, we, we happen to disagree with that story as well, but I'm trying to bring it back to the very beginning and say, wait a minute, how do we get that first organism? And what's happened, uh, Janet, in the scientific research is a little bit different than what's been happening in the debate. In the scientific research, um, certainly the last several years, and I would even say over the last hundred years, there's been a lot of effort to push back this first initial beginning of how we can get life started, what kickstarts life. And so... Everybody recognizes, and by everybody I mean even the most ardent materialists, recognizes that we're not going to get a living cell to arise by chance on the early Earth. It's just not going to happen. So the question then is, is there something simpler? Is there something that can kickstart that process? And scientists have looked at uh, metabolism. They've looked at you know, simple membranes. They've looked at DNA and RNA. And right now, the current probably most popular idea that's getting a lot of research is the idea of a simple self-replicator, even a single self-replicating molecule. And so the idea is, if we can get a single self-replicating molecule to arise on the early Earth, then we can depend on Darwinian evolution to build the first organism. Hmm. And so what's going on in the scientific research is very clear right now. Not only is Darwinian evolution relevant to the origin of life, but origin-of-life researchers are absolutely depending on Darwinian evolution to build this first living organism if, it, if they can only get something like a simple self-replicating molecule on the early Earth. Well, now, this is interesting. So if they were to discover a self-replicating molecule, is the idea that that's how the Darwinian scheme works? In other words, that's how you could have the replication of life and, and the evolution of life throughout all of these centuries without God being involved or without any intelligent design being involved? Absolutely, yes. The idea is if we can get a self-replicator, then the magic of Darwinian evolution kicks in. We have mutation and selection. And just like the story goes that we can build new organisms, let's say, during the Cambrian explosion. You know, something that Steve Myers talked a lot about. Yeah. You have organism A, and through the magic of, uh, you know, mutation and selection, we build organism B through, on up through Z. Just in that same way, the idea is if I can get a self-replicating molecule, 
then through Darwinian mutation selection, I will be able to build things like metabolism, build things like uh, you know information-rich molecules, translation and transcription system, all of the things that are required for even the simplest cell. Well, isn't this a matter, though, of discovery? Because when you talk about getting a self-replicating molecule, how do you go about getting one of those? I'm not even sure what the process would involve. Oh, there's a tremendous amount of work going on in the lab right now. Um, and what they're focusing on is typically, and you could, have, you could have something like a protein which is built up of amino acids, but typically what people are focusing on is RNA. And the reason for that is because RNA, as we know, has the ability to store information in biology. We see that happening along with DNA. But it also has the ability to act as an enzyme, meaning it can help certain reactions take place. And so the idea was, hey, this is awesome. We've now got a two-for-one. Not only can RNA store some information, which is one of the big problems for origin of life, but it can also do something. It can also, you know, catalyze a reaction. And so the effort now is to create what's called a polynucleotide, which is a, you know, it's a molecule with a number of these nucleotides strung together. And if we can get one of these things put together that somehow replicates itself, then boom, you know, Darwinian evolution can kick in and, for, most, for the most part, we'll, we'll congratulate ourselves and say that we've solved the mystery of the origin of life. Yeah, except, I, I mean, I'm not a scientist, obviously, but my question would be, yeah, but but how'd the molecule get there? Well, sure. <laughs> sure, you could, you could push back even further, and, and that kind of backs up to the cosmological argument and the fine-tuning of physics and chemistry um, argument that we talked a little bit about in Chapter 1 as to how you even get the kind of universe that you need to have life where it can happen anyway. Uh, but there's some really serious problems with the idea of a self-replicating molecule on the early Earth. And, and that's, that's where the story starts. I mean, back to your question about why is this a big issue. There are lots of good arguments around information, around molecular machines. But in the mind of the materialist, you have to remember, self-replication is the key. Okay, that's why I call it the holy grail. Because once I get that, eh, the other stuff, you know, it's going to happen by evolution. I don't have to worry about how I build an information bearing molecule like DNA. I don't have to worry about how I build molecular machines. Darwinian evolution is going to take care of that for me. And that's nonsense. But in the mind of the materialist, if I can get that simple self-replicator on the early Earth, boom, I'm, I'm practically there. Yeah, yeah. Although, like we were saying just a moment ago, if you can't explain where matter came in the first place, you're never going to be able to go back far enough unless you are willing to engage with the idea that perhaps there was a creator on some level. Yes, that's that's correct. And that, that deals with some of the issues, again, on, on the cosmological side. You know, the multiverse has been thrown out as a potential way to try to deal with um, issues related to the fine-tuning of the constants of, of chemistry and physics. But that's it's really not a good argument, and it, and it fails on a number of levels. So Yeah, exactly, because w- w- one of the things that you talk about in your chapter are some of the discoveries that were made that proved no organism could arise all at once on the early Earth by chance, and that's one of the things that I want to get into a little bit more, as well as examine this idea for self-replication and why there's so many problems with the idea in the first place. Eric Anderson with us. We're going to come back talking about the new book, Evolution and Intelligent Design, in a nutshell. We'll be right back.
The U.N. has called what's happening in Lebanon the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. COVID-19, political upheaval, a crumbling economy, and two million refugees, children and their families, living in poverty and despair. But in the middle of it all, God is at work. More Muslim-cultured people than ever before are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And through your generous support, Heart for Lebanon is being used to bring these hurting people from despair to hope. A single gift of $116 helps bring a child and their family survival essentials and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. $348 cares for this family for an entire year. We have a goal to take over 50 families off a waiting list that desperately need our help. So we're hoping you'll be as generous as you can when you call 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Well, I sure appreciate this book, Evolution and Intelligent Design, in a nutshell, because most of us are not scientists and we don't know what the research is right now pertaining to the scientific evidence that actually points toward intelligent design. We're discussing this with Eric Anderson, who is an attorney. He's also a software engineering executive, and he is also a contributing author on evolution and intelligent design and Uncommon Descent. Eric, we were talking about this idea that self-replication is something that a lot of these Darwinian evolutionists are working hard on. That is, if you can get evidence that a molecule can self-replicate, then that would solve a lot of problems for the evolutionists. But what are some of the discoveries that have been made proving that an organism couldn't arise all at once on the early Earth by chance? What, what sorts of evidence can you present that would give us you know, information that's important to know over this issue of self-replication? Right. So back clear, I would go back clear to the late 1800s. You know, if you start sort of mid-1800s when Darwin is around, there was an idea that the organism was relatively simple in the sense that at the cellular level. There was a concept called a protoplasm. Sometimes you hear the cell referred to as a blob of protoplasm or a sack of protoplasm, whatever that may be. But the idea was that it was relatively simple. And so if you had that viewpoint, you can understand why somebody might think, well, it's relatively easy just to take some of this and add more and add more, and you could kind of shape it. Imagine like clay that you're shaping into some shape, and you throw a little more clay, and you could shape it into something else. And indeed, Darwin referred to organisms as plastic in the origin. He wasn't talking about, you know, the material that we make children's toys out of, but he was talking about the fact that the organism was malleable, it was moldable, it could be shaped by the environment. But in the late 1800s, 
scientists started to, uh, because of better equipment and better capabilities, started to understand that the cell had particular components in it. It wasn't just a homogenous blob of protoplasm. It had different things that were going on. And then early in the 1900s, there was more recognition. And so over the last 100 years, there's just been a tremendous growth in our knowledge of what the cell consists of, how it functions, all of the different machinery that goes on, all of the information processing that occurs in the cell. And so when you look at that trying to come together by molecules bumping into each other by chance, you know, it's just not going to happen. I mean, the probabilities are off the chart. And like I say, even the most ardent materialists recognize that that's not going to occur. And so in the early 1900s, you had um, O'Paran and Haldane who started proposing, hey, maybe there was some kind of pre-evolution, a chemical evolution, they called it, whereby the molecules start to come together and do something interesting and then later on give way to Darwinian evolution. Those have really been merged, as I was mentioning earlier, into the same concept now where we're just we're just hoping for a single self-replicating molecule. Once we get that, we're going to turn it over to Darwin and let him do the rest. Oh, sure. Right. Well, one thing that you mentioned that is very interesting is you talk about the RepRap project in your mm-hmm. in your uh, chapter in the book. This is an open source venture seeking to create a self-replicating 3D printer. This is kind of right. an interesting thing you talk about. Tell listeners a little bit about the conclusions that you're drawing from this printer issue. Yeah, this is an interesting one because it, it occasionally comes up even in the debates. I debated one person online who was saying, well, we, you know, we already have a self-replicating printer, so how far away can we be from other stuff, right? <laughs> so I had, had to point into a few facts. But yeah, there have been a few. And, and by the way, just for listeners, I love this technology. I love 3D printing. I'm not dogging on that at all. There's a lot of great work being done that can help us with prototyping and even manufacturing, and it's going to really revolutionize a lot of the things that we're doing in industry. But there are a couple of groups who have put out this idea that, hey, we've got a self-replicating uh, printer. But if you look at it, it's just, you know, we're not even in the ballpark. <laughs> it can replicate, uh, actually I shouldn't even say that, it can print a few of the parts which then have to be um, carefully examined by the user, cleaned up, assembled in the right way. But there are hundreds, probably thousands of parts that it can't replicate. <laughs> and furthermore, it can't construct itself. Yeah. And... If you're in a watery environment like the cell is, you can't have just a bunch of components lying around on a desk and hope everything's going to be fine. You have to protect those. They have to be enclosed. You're going to be subjected to other things in the environment that are going to cause interfering cross-reactions. All of this has to be worked out in a way that allows this entity to replicate. And so the cell does something ingenious. If you look at like a bacterium, it builds a copy of itself inside of itself, and then holes or cinches the middle of the cell together, it separates the components into two and cinches those together and eventually releases the separate copy. But that's all required. It's not optional. You have to do that if you're in a watery environment or everything gets bogged down with interfering reactions or things float off and get lost. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So why do they say that this is a self-replicating printer if indeed it isn't? Oh, yeah, no, this is, this is uh, I think partly it's uh, marketing hype. I think partly it's the fact that people really aren't thinking through things carefully. And ironically, by the way, one of the early uh, RepRap printers was called Darwin. Oh, um, funny. Of course, <laughs> of, course, of course, this was a carefully designed and carefully engineered machine, but they, they referred to it as Darwin. Yeah, I think people just aren't thinking through the issues carefully. And so part of what I'm doing in that chapter, at least in that section, is to say, hey, come on, let's let's step back. 
let's look at what's really required here to get a self-replicating machine. And we're, we're not even in the ballpark. We're not even scratching the surface. Right. It's so interesting, too, because as you mentioned, it can't assemble itself the same problem that we were discussing pertaining to the molecule. But, but also with the printer, you have man assembling it. So you still have, and I don't know what the current debates are along these lines, but you still have man as the pinnacle of creation. Man is the smartest human, you know, the smartest entity on earth that is able to make things like printers and do things in labs and that sort of thing. So ultimately, don't you have to go back to the the basic issue when you're talking about Darwinian evolutionary theory, which is how in the world did you go from molecules to something so complicated as man? Well, I think that's a, that's one way to take the approach. I would add to that, though, Janet, that even if you go there, you still don't end up with all of the faculties, and maybe that's what you're talking about, all the faculties that man possesses. I yeah. mean, it's one thing to say, like, you know, I've built some machine. It's quite another thing to say that this machine has consciousness and awareness and intelligence and True. ability to act. Uh, those are things that we just have no materialistic account for whatsoever in science. Yeah, that's a good point. Also, you've mentioned in your chapter that if you're talking about a super molecule that could self-replicate, it wouldn't be DNA or RNA, would it? Well, um, so hypothetically, the idea in the current research is that you could do something like this with RNA, and there's been a lot of work on that, but nobody's ever succeeded. My point is really not so much what type of molecule it is from a standpoint of chemistry, but the requirements from an engineering standpoint of what would be required to have a self-replicating entity. And the other thing that's really significant here, which, you know, as far as I know, nobody's talking about, is that even if you had, let's grant the miracle of a self-replicating molecule on the early Earth, so what? Uh, as soon as it mutates, remember, this thing's got to go on and mutate and turn into something else, right? Yeah. As soon as it mutates, that process of self-replication, which you had so carefully stumbled upon, is not going to work anymore. You can't just willy-nilly make changes to the nucleotides in a polynucleotide and expect it to continue to function. Yeah. And so this replication process that is really just assumed as kind of a given under evolutionary theory is a huge problem, not just at the origin of life, but throughout the evolutionary history. If I take an, an animal that could uh, you know, crawl and I want to make it fly, that's one thing, but I, even the self-replication part of that isn't going to work unless I re-engineer that for a flying creature. And so this, this idea that exists in evolutionary theory that, hey, once we get self-replication on the early earth, we can kind of check the box and we're done. No, no, no. You have to re-engineer or at least maintain, but in most cases, re-engineer that self-replication process every time you make a significant change to the organism. And this is a huge conceptual problem that's almost never discussed. Well, it would seem that even the scientists who buy into the Darwinian evolutionary theory would understand this, that they're, they're maybe not as close to a natural explanation for the origin of life as they would like to be. Is there some reality that is, is coming out of some of these scientific circles saying, mm, I don't really know if we're going to be able to do this? Yeah, I, d I don't know that I would say there's a lot of reality coming out. I think there's a lot of reality coming out from outsiders. Yeah. You know, people who are both knowledgeable in chemistry. James Tour has been a great example of somebody who has had the courage to raise his hand and say, wait a minute, there's a lot of problems with what's being discussed in Origin of Life and the way that it's presented to the public and the confidence with which it's presented to the public. Um, you know, Origin of Life researchers are convinced. You have to understand that if I am absolutely convinced that there's a naturalistic explanation for life on Earth, no guidance, no intelligent intervention, no need for a creator, if I'm absolutely convinced of that, 
then something naturalistic has to be right. Yeah. Maybe I'm not quite, you know, maybe my lab isn't quite right. Maybe my buddy's lab over in the other university is right. But one of us is going to stumble upon the answer eventually. And so there's a real mentality that it doesn't matter whether my particular approach right now is, is working. We're just going to throw stuff at the wall. Yeah. And eventually... We're going to stumble upon it because it just has to be right. Oh, man. Well, the name of the book is Evolution and Intelligent Design. Eric Anderson with us. Great to talk to you, Eric. Thank you so much for your work and for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. All right. God bless you. Thanks for being here. This hour of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by Heart for Lebanon. Call 888-247-5499 to give desperate people help and the hope of the gospel. 888-247-5499.